On this episode of Power Up Software, we will be joining Jeff Neat and his dad, Ken Neat, discussing different aspects of teams, uh, unique team dynamics that you may not be aware of, and different challenges that come about in forming and having effective software teams. I guess I can introduce myself. I've already met you. Oh, yeah, already. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm Jeff Neat. Uh, spent about a decade working across financial um, financial sectors, you know, defense contracting, a little bit on the commercial side, consulting for Toyota, and then um, eventually started a game studio. So I'm currently the CEO of Pixelpug, co-founded with a friend who wanted to create a studio focused on using games as a catalyst to create and build community. So I look at that in terms of looking at what social media and being raised on social media has done to this current generation. And I feel like it's really ripped apart or frayed the the fabric of our society. And so we like to approach using games as a way to bridge that gap and create moments where people can come together and connect in meaningful and memorable ways. So uh, that's kind of the, the direction that I'm you know, approaching this from. And it's a whole, whole different set of challenges that I see now trying to start a company and grow a team on our own, um, as opposed to stepping into a startup or stepping into an existing large company structure, uh, which is typically where I was at in the past. So it's been nice to see the full, full gambit of what's um, what's out there, the different challenges you face, whether you're captaining the Titanic or a speedboat or a jet ski sometimes, as I feel like now. That's awesome. Introduce yourself. I'm uh, Ken Neat, and you just met my son. I spent uh, 25 years, a little over 25 years in adult education at at the college level, uh, teaching actually finance and accounting. But about the same time I started at the, in, in teaching at the college level, I also was introduced to a personality profile instrument. I know there's a bunch of them out, but I was introduced to one and found it very fascinating and saw that there was a lot of applications for uh, personal relationships, business relationships, team relationships. And uh, so I've uh, pursued that as well. I've got a company called Kenny Communications. We do leadership and development training focusing a lot on that right now, as well as uh, using these same concepts of personality styles in terms of family relationships, and especially with parents and children, and helping both sides of that equation to understand each other more fully and more effectively, have parents help children recognize and pursue what their passions and their destinies are. Awesome. Well, thank you both for joining me. Appreciate the time. And yeah, looking forward to talking more about, you know, just kind of some of the things that you've seen in a team. You know, Jeff, I know you're you're just building, you know, new teams. So if you could talk about some of the different struggles you've seen in the team that you're building up, and we can kind of talk about what could be causing those struggles or what what are the things that lessons you've kind of learned as you're building this new team? 
Sure. So um, let's see. I think one of the initial problems we ran into uh, is just getting off the ground. Like you got to get funding secured, right? And so when you go and talk to an investor and you've got a couple engineers, uh, that doesn't really mean much because there's no one there that can, um, in, our, in our instance, we're building games. So there's no one there that would illustrate proficiency in design and art. And there's no one there that would lead them to believe that you can manage a schedule and a budget. So before you can actually get something off the ground, you really need to demonstrate competency in business, competency in engineering, and then competency in design and aesthetics, at least if you're dealing with an entertainment um, product. You might be able to get by in traditional software um, without that creative director position. Or, you know, I think at startups I've been at in the past, if you have the CTO and CEO filled, that seems to be enough. So that was kind of our initial uh, step was how do I link arms with uh, a couple different people in a way that we can present something trustworthy enough, one for ourselves that we think we can make it across the finish line and two for an investor to entrust us with their money. And it's really a very different perspective. When you show up to a company with, uh, I know you and I have worked before for companies in the 20,000 or 200,000 employee range. So when you show up there, you don't get a sense of camaraderie in the same way that you do when, if the guy next to you stops working, your family doesn't get food money anymore, right? Uh, you, you show up and you're wired into HR and uh, payroll and those types of things. And so it, it feels like you're joining this giant machine and you're kind of a replaceable cog when you're all the way down at a startup, there's a very likely chance that nobody's gonna be making money for a little bit, or at least not as much as they would if they just stepped out and took a full position. So there's really a degree of trust that is required and friendship that's required beyond simply bringing the skill sets that you need um, to the table. So in our instance, I had worked in the past um, with my co-founder Brock um, on another, another project uh, for a studio called Numinous Games. And so we had worked side by side there for about six months. We'd known each other through the Christian Game Developers Conference um, for a couple of years. And so we had enough of a friendship and relationship under, developed um, that we understood the degree of trust that we could place in each other, I suppose. Adjacent to that, his background was in art. Uh, his degree was in um, communication and uh, visual design, but he was a self-taught programmer. Honestly, you were one of the people that came to mind because the same things I hear you rant about that you're passionate about in excellence and programming are the same things I was hearing coming out of Brock's mouth. So that told me he was actually a very, uh, very well experienced, skilled developer in addition to uh, someone that could handle the visual side and then I brought some development experience to the table, as well as some of the planning and team organization side that came from uh, the last, you know, the later, later half of my career. In looking for new talent to come alongside right now, that's actually been a, a more difficult balance for us in getting the resources in place first. 
you know, the, the chicken and egg problem, right? You need the bigger team to catch the bigger deal, but you need the bigger deal to pay the bigger team. Uh, and so we've been, we've been working through a couple different, different challenges there, but have uh, more, more opportunity on the horizon, it looks like to be scaling up, uh, scaling up a little bit. Awesome. And what I find interesting about that piece is, again, you know, you've done both sides of the life cycle. And it's, it's interesting that it seems like there's this mentality where when you're in the startup realm, it's more about focusing on skill sets. Your partner has skills that you need, but you don't have, and you have skills that, you know, your partner doesn't have. And it's really important to bring in those kind of more diverse teams versus, you know, we've sat at the 20,000 company. And to get to your point about feeling like the cog, I actually think that's a big mistake that a lot of the big companies make, because I find it's just as important, but it's not focused on when you're talking about building a team in those bigger companies. It's blatantly obvious as a startup that you have to have that diversity of skill sets in order to deliver, because there's no other option. There's not that big team but at the same time, if you don't have that diversity, even you know, down to if you're doing safe and you have a scrum team of you know, uh, 10 people and you're one scrum team of multiple different arts, so you're like one of 200 people, it's, I find that in the scrum mentality these days where they talk about that interchangeable developer that's on the team, all of that kind of diversity seems to get lost. I don't know your thoughts on that or if you've seen that and this has made you a lot more aware. And I'd also like to hear your your dad's opinion on that kind of mesh of different skill sets coming together, as well as that how that can breed personality conflicts when you do have those different skill sets. Yeah, I think we'll have a lot to uh, a lot to dig into there. One of the things that stands out to me. Um, the most is when it comes to hiring new talent onto the team. Um, so when you have when you have fresh college hires, they've been brought up in a culture that says, now that you have a degree, you deserve a job. And so that's your that's your lunch ticket, right? You show up to an employee, you say, look, I did it. I made it through all four years hand me my paycheck, how does my, you know, where do I sit? Again, unfortunately, when you talk about those larger corporate environments, that's pretty much true. You show up and they've got a list of positions they need filled and you've got some team that has nothing to do with the team actually doing the work, whose job is to fill the position. So they find a kid with the requirements that match, pair the teams together, and then you're off and running that same scenario in a company who only has seven employees but they're overworked and so you need that eighth guy in there to come in and carry some of that burden if you are a new college hire and you show up with a mentality where you're like sweet i got my paycheck i was here I, you know i was in my desk for eight hours a day you're going to breed animosity very quickly with the rest of the team because they were actually looking for somebody to come and put you know, their portion of the burden on their shoulder and show up because you need 
to help your whole team move forward, not because this is where a paycheck finally comes from. I feel like there's this gap actually between our work and our pay that was never supposed to be as tightly coupled as it has become, um, which is why I kind of prefer a, a salaried environment. Um, and I know uh, you and I both have been in lots of salaried environments where you're still clocking hours every day because that's just how time is tracked and project budget, budgets are tracked. But I think that that can mentally put you in a weird, a weird position where you're attaching your value to hours of time in the seat and not to what your team is able to accomplish together. And so I think my dad can speak more to the, the tensions that arise. And I've got a couple examples we can go back and talk about as well. But when you start bringing new people into a team, um, there's actually kind of a, a roadmap that they need to take. It doesn't matter how experienced they are, but there's this, this process of integrating into the team and growing in the way that they interact with their management or whatever senior engineer. It doesn't have to be in you know, an engineering environment, but whoever it is that's assigned to them to help designate their work, uh, there is a process that both of those people will grow through. And I would say that the number one source of tension, uh, emotional distress, frustration, anxiety that I've experienced across companies of all different sizes in retrospect comes from this process not being handled well. So when I finally sat down and my dad was you know, coaching me through some of this, it was like the light bulb went on and I had this roadmap that I could lay out and pinpoint, oh, this is exactly where the team went wrong and we just didn't know. It was just, we were lacking that bird's eye view to recognize why that interaction interaction suddenly became so stressful. Let me, let me um, continue on with what Jeff was saying. To do that, let me say just a little bit of, of foundational information. Uh, the, the personality style model that I use is the DISC model. A lot, there's a lot of different personality style models out, but I like this one because it's easy to understand, it's easy to use, it's easy to administer, and it's easy to apply. So I just, I just like using it. And so there's four basic styles. Again, there's a lot of four basic style models, but DISC has four styles. The D in DISC stands for direct uh, or directness. The I stands for influencing. The S stands for steadiness. And the, C, the C stands for competency or compliance to high standards. And let me broaden that out just a little bit. The D style tends, and these are all tendencies because we're all pretty dynamic and we don't just necessarily fit into one little pigeonhole, but in general terms, the Ds tend to be active and outgoing and product oriented, but with a results focus. So these are active, outgoing, looking at the product and getting results done. Eyes tend to be active and outgoing, but people oriented with a focus on inspiration. They want somebody to inspire or they're, they're good motivators or promoters. S's tend to be quiet and reserved with a people focus, but that people focus is on 
long-term relationships. And then the C's tend to be, again, quiet and reserved and product oriented, but the orientation, the focus on the product is quality. So D's are anxious to get results. I's want to promote and interact. S's want to develop relationships and C's want the product to be done with a high quality. In a team environment, the D's tend to generate ideas. The I's tend to promote the ideas. The S's tend to follow through on those ideas. And the C's tend to make sure that the quality is maintained. That sounds like an ideal team. We have ideas. We have somebody to promote the ideas. We have somebody to make sure follow through is taken care of. And we have somebody to make sure that the product that goes out the door is quality. In the midst of that dynamic, there's a grand opportunity for a lot of frustration. For example, uh, D's want to get the job done and get it out the door, but C's want to make sure that it's done right. Both of those are important. And where the C's want to get the job out the door, they want to make sure it's quality control. So they might hold back on production schedules or production priority to make sure that the quality priority is taken care of. Whereas the D's are saying, it's good enough, let's let it go out. Again, those are general, general comments and general tendencies, but it can create a conflict between those two groups. They're both product oriented, but with a different focus on that product orientation. Just to use two uh, as an example, the roadmap that Jeff was talking about is when somebody first comes in, when an employee is first hired, they tend to be highly motivated. I mean, you're probably no more motiv motivated than you are the first day you come into to work, but your skill level is pretty low. And you might be a 30 year industry veteran, but as far as that specific environment is concerned, you're, you have the least amount of skills as you're ever gonna have. You know, tomorrow you're gonna have more skills than you have today. A year from now, you're gonna have more skills than you have the first day you come onto that assignment. So the motivation tends to be high, but the skill level tends to be low. An employee in that situation needs direct instruction. That's not something easy for some of the personality styles to do. They're anxious to, well, I have a friend of mine that is very much high D. He's very results oriented. And his motto is kind of brain surgery, give me the scalpel. And there may be some training that's necessary before he actually does successful brain surgery. So you can't just have a brand new employee come in day one and say, here's your assignment. I'll check with you next week and it better be done and it better be done right. There needs to be some instruction that goes along with that. So even though a manager might wanna have a focus on moving somebody to delegate, there's a very specific process that every employee has to go through to be to get to the point where a manager can successfully delegate to them. And just in a quick nutshell, those four steps are direct instruction, coaching, collaborating, and then successful delegation. And it's a process that every employee has to go through. Sometimes it doesn't take very long to get through that. Sometimes it takes a long time to get through that or a longer time to get through that, but every employee has to go through it. 
On the other hand, the manager, again, can't just uh, have an employee walk in on day one and delegate a big task to them. The manager has to be willing to go through those four stages with the employee. Because of our personality style and our temperament, some managers tend to want to sit in that direct instruction stage and just be hands-on micromanagers. And they're very comfortable watching over your shoulder and making sure that you're doing everything exactly right. Uh, some managers are willing to, to do a little bit more coaching and you know the, the cheerleading and the, the motivation that comes with coaching. But that's not the delegation stage. That's where you improve performance, but we haven't gotten to the delegation stage yet. Some managers like the collaborative phase, which is a lot of two-way interaction, and it gives an employee a chance to enter into the decision-making process. But we're not at delegation yet. The fourth step is delegation. And to successfully get to that, managers have to be willing to let employees go through all four of those stages. Um, I've got a day-long workshop that talks about that, just kind of encapsulating an eight-hour workshop into a you know five-minute kind of capsule overview is what just happened. But we've seen some very effective results come out of um, managers that follow this roadmap. So now I'm curious, if you had a new team that, let's say it's not just one new employee, but you have a new team starting, Part of the, the agile literature talks about this whole storming, forming, and norming, or sorry, forming, storming, and norming phases. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious as to the insights with those four different personalities. What I found in my experience is that some of those personality types tend to, in that storming phase and even in the norming phase, take on a stronger role just due to the nature of their personalities, which I have found is not always healthy for a team. And I'm curious to your thoughts on that. And if there's any techniques that you can do to kind of prevent that, those stronger personalities from basically kind of overwhelming the other ones on the team. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that, especially about the, the, employees or the, the personalities that have a little bit higher ego strength, the thesis, this DISC personality style instrument was developed out of a question, can a leader be predicted from a leaderless group? So what characteristics identify maybe leadership traits that would cause a, one individual over another individual to arise as a leader? And you're right, Chris, the, the person that might arise as a leader out of that new team or that, that leaderless group might not necessarily have all of the skills necessary to pull that team together in a cohesive fashion. There tends to be a lot of direct communication. Uh, these, for example, tend to communicate in terms of what, for example, this is what you're gonna do this is what we need to have done. This is what the product needs to look like. So they tend to communicate in terms of what, whereas other team members, specifically the S's, might tend to communicate more in terms of, well, how? How are we going to do that? Well, that's, that's really not what the D wants to talk about. The D wants to talk about what and let you figure out the how. 
In fact, there's a quote attributed to General George S. Patton uh, that says, never tell somebody how to do something, tell them what to do and let their creativity surprise you. Well, Patton, I haven't studied him in great detail, but I saw his movie. <laughs> and he seemed to be, be a very high D individual. He was very direct in his communication style. He was very results oriented and wasn't a lot, there wasn't a lot of empathy or, or the human interaction that pulls a cohesive team together and causes it to, to stick together. You know, that empathy, I think, is the glue that holds the team together. And yet he was a very effective leader in terms of getting the job done. But in that quote that I just mentioned, his style was to tell them what to do, don't tell them how. But there are individuals that want to know how. How do you want me to get this done? How do you want me to go about this? Uh, just like eyes are very interested in who is going to be involved in the project. Uh, who, who are the customers going to be? Who are the team members that are getting together? Am I going to have fun with them? Uh, whereas the C's are saying, well, why? Why are we doing it this way? Why, uh, why did you paint the product red instead of blue? You know, well, because we needed to paint it some color, so we just decided on that one. So the why questions are not challenging questions. They are serious curiosity questions. And that's just how the style works out. So you're right. I think there tends to be stronger personalities that rise to the top. The, the strategy of making that stronger personality become a more effective leader is helping them to understand what the motivations of the other types are. And uh, again, in, the, in the, that eight hour workshop, we spend quite a bit of time on motivational tendencies. You know, what makes me, my tendency, I tend to be a, an I, an influencer. I have a much different motivation than the D does. I want to, I act enthusiastically and I want to influence people, whereas the D just wants to get the job done. And so while we have some commonalities, there's also some things where I'm different and if the D wants to be an effective manager for me, he needs or she needs to understand my motivations, just like, in the, just like the other types as well. Ds tend to rise to management style or management positions because they do have a strong personality style. They tend to be the, res, the results orientation. And that really is the bottom line focus for a manager. We got to get the job done, but we got to get it done through people. So the most effective D managers are the ones that have an understanding of the, the motivations and the, the communication style of the other of the other types. And and that part in particular, I do find actually really fascinating tied to, I've been uh, doing some master's classes and one of the ones I did was, it's a FBI negotiator, really, really great master's class I recommended to anybody. Um, but what he talks about is that why, the question why actually puts us, most people, in a defensive posture. Mm -hmm. And the reason he says that is because it actually makes you go back to when you were a kid. Your parents would always ask you, why did you do that? Like you were in trouble. So you associate trouble with the why. 
And what I see play out in a lot of engineering companies is exactly as you described it. The Ds get into the management position and they get into these leadership roles or they get into the chief you know, architect roles or these higher level roles when in actuality, the people that we really need to do those roles well tend to be more of the why askers but because they're not perceived in this light among their teams, they're, they're basically everybody perceives them as attacking by their why questions. It almost puts them as a disadvantage if they don't understand the team dynamics and what those other types are. So it, it's just fascinating to me that that tends to be, you know, I see, I've seen this play out on team after team after team that have this particular problem. You make a really good point, Chris. There's the, the why question, especially to a, a, a D manager, I think, is often, is often looked at as a challenge to my authority. If I'm the D, why'd you do it that way? Well, because I'm in charge and that's enough for you. But that's not an effective, that's not an effective team answer, especially if if you understand that the reason that the C type of an individual asks the why question because they're curious, they're not challenging, they, they're seeking information. They're, they're kind of programmed to seek the details and the information. And honestly, if I'm going in for some very technical surgery, I want somebody, I want a surgeon that asks a lot of why questions. You know, there are certain environments where that why question is very important. And I think it's important when in a leadership role in a team to approach, to try to approach those conversations through a lens of vulnerability and an assumption that the person you're talking to has some level of competence or reason why they're asking those questions. Because when you hear why, let's say it's from a new hire, and you're thinking, I don't have time to explain this to you right now. It's easy to dismiss that and just say, it's already been planned, just do it that way. But if you dig, you know, if you get a little curious and dig deeper into why are you asking me why? Like, is it because you, you don't understand? Is it because you've never, you, know, you don't have experience with this tool set? So the instruction I just gave you didn't make sense? Is it because maybe you have seen this somewhere else and there might be a more efficient solution that's available that I'm not aware of? So, you know, looking at through those lenses of empathy, vulnerability, um, and that assumption that the person on the other end is not just a cog or a sticky cog getting in your way, uh, but that they might actually have something to contribute, I think that can really help smooth out those, those interactions. Because sometimes I'll see, um, you know, through our, our chat system, we're working remotely right now. I'll see a, a screenshot come through or an idea come through or uh, developers explaining a change that they just made. And my initial gut reaction is, well, that was dumb or that looks stupid. And then I do catch myself I'm like, well, that's not a fair, that's not a fair assumption because I'm not working with just random people I've never met. Like I know these guys and they don't make stupid decisions. They don't make 
just haphazard guesses. So then if I, if I hold true that there must have been a reason for it, well, now my only course of action is to dig into that further and say, why did you make this change? Why did you switch it to this instead of that? Like, explain to me your reasoning because this doesn't make sense to me, but I am willing to assume that maybe you understand something that I don't. Uh, those those conversations, they don't spiral off into hour-long meetings of things that don't matter. Like we keep those um, fairly tight. And I would say 90% of the time when they explain their reasoning behind, behind a change, it either one immediately makes sense and has more, uh, more thought behind it than I initially realized, or once they explain what they did, I'll explain my other concern and then maybe they say, oh, I didn't think about that. And they go back and make the change. Um, or sometimes they say, I did think about that. And here's the additional cost associated with it. What do you want to do? And then it's, you know, they're, they're passing that control back in my direction as the executive function to say, does, is this worth the cost to go make this other change? Or do we, we go with what we have in there? Um, because it's not worth the time cost or the resource cost or the opportunity cost. But that perspective of of empathy and being being able to yield to their communication style or yield to exploring curiously, why did they make that choice before I just blanket assume that it doesn't match the roadmap I had in my head of how we were going to get from A to Z. And, and Chris, if I could just kind of dovetail on with what Jeff said. What he described was a very good example of the collaboration phase where there was two-way communication, not just Jeff telling somebody else that he's working with how to improve their performance, which would be more of a coaching function, but in the collaboration function, there's two-way communication about, oh yeah, your idea will make this a better product, let's go for it. Or it, it was a good idea, and at the same time, we can't implement it because of whatever constraints that Jeff as the executive has the right to make. But in that process, Jeff is training this other person that he's dealing with, the criteria that Jeff uses for decision-making. So in the future, this other person then has a better understanding of Jeff's decision-making framework and can be trusted more effectively to make decisions in the same framework that Jeff is making him as the executive. And that allows them both an opportunity to take advantage of the delegation function. It takes that responsibility off Jeff to watch over what they're doing so that these changes just don't go out blanket, but it also gives the other individual an opportunity to know that if I make this change, Jeff will approve it. Or if I make this change, Jeff won't approve it. So I'm not going to waste my time on unapprovable decisions. I'm going to invest my time on decisions like Jeff would make them. And we can move forward to where Jeff can delegate effectively and competently, which is really the goal that we want to get to. Yeah. And the passive benefit back to me, you know, if you're the passive benefit back to me is that if you're in a position where you feel like, especially as your team is expanding, you know, that that's not free. The, the team takes a hit. I know sometimes 
uh, it appears that, I don't know if it's true, but it appears yeah. that the perspective from upper management is, well, if we're not gonna get it done fast enough, let's add, add two more guys to the team and then we'll hit the finish line. But the problem is if you add two, you actually lose two more <laughs> because oh, you yeah. gotta you gotta start back at direct instruction with these two new guys. How do I log in? Where are my credentials? How does the whole system work? You don't just automatically get to start delegating tasks to them. It doesn't matter if they're 15 year industry vets, they might progress across that curve um, faster and move towards delegation faster, but it's not free just to add them to a team. So if you're in a position where you do feel like um, too much of your time is being pulled in direct oversight, the more you have those types of, um, of interactions, we're passively progressing along that curve and it's releasing more of my time back to myself to keep more eyes on the horizon and understand where we're heading. If there's, you know, if there's clouds brewing, if things are changing, if there's a um, something I need to be preparing for instead of spending all my time context switching between different, you know, problems or questions that are coming, uh, coming my direction from other team members. Yeah. And it, it, I, I do like that point. Um, I'll, there's definitely going to be a separate podcast on <laughs> that very topic um, for sure about the you know, growing and shrinking of team sizes and how that isn't built into that. But it's, it's, it's good that, you know, you have that vision to kind of sit out there. Another topic that I'd love to talk to you about at some time too, but I think that's a little too much for this episode, but mm -hmm. where I think a lot of people get in trouble too, when it comes to these team dynamics and even, you know, this executive dynamic is, um, I personally believe there is an epidemic um, among most corporate America, but especially I've noticed it in the software industry of a lack of emotional health among engineers. And what you're describing to me is an emotionally healthy person that's able to handle the stress and is able to, you know, make these decisions and see someone from an other point of view, which is good on you. I've just found that a lot of what creates a lot of this conflict is that you, especially in the larger companies, you know, you might not have at those lower levels of management or even on the team, emotionally healthy enough people to want to seek that. They're barely just scraping by the day and, you know, then they go home and they're miserable at home. And so then they come back to work and, you know, it's just this kind of, meat grinder kind of effect where you never even get into those types of, you know, interactions or those viewpoints because you're not taking the time to take care of yourself. Yeah, that's a really good point. And um, as we were discussing uh, even just earlier today about stages of maturity amongst team members that what I, what I observe when I'm interacting with a, uh, you know, emotionally mature or um, even just more mature in their career, uh, an individual that's more mature in their career, is you can have a, a moment of tension, whether it's a disagreement in how you approach something or um, a critique of your, your work or a piece of feedback you're getting. When you kind of butt heads for a minute, the 
the, the more weak, or I guess the more powerless response is to blame that other person for the way you are feeling or to react in fear and try to hide the way uh, you are feeling or the, oh, the word escapes my mind. But anyway, when you're, when you're reacting out of fear or reacting out of insecurity, it causes you to pull back and withdraw connection from that other person and you build up another layer of this wall. And the more that wall is there, the more anxiety continues to kind of fester on your side of it. But when you're interacting with someone that is in a more mature state, they will almost see that interaction from a bird's eye view. And they have this moment where they go, oh, I've been here before, I recognize this interaction, this part of the map, and they can stop and reset the terms of how you're interacting um, very easily. So for example, when, uh, when I was a new hire, I, I had some um, unhealthy interactions with management. And uh, in one instance, I was on a team of extremely experienced individuals. They were all awesome. I remember like one of the guys could type faster than he could talk. So you just have to like sit and wait and he explained what he had coded afterwards. But they were, they were all way over on that delegation curve and you could just assign them a new feature. Sometimes a new product would come in that the CEO had already sold. And they said, go, go build it. I need to demo it in two weeks and they would get it done. So when I was brought in as an intern to this team, there was a huge gap between how management could interact with the rest of the team and how they could interact with me and what expectations they could put on me in a healthy way. And so in those unhealthy interactions, I would, I would be delegated to immediately with no background understanding of the product, but also the underlying technologies just because I hadn't encountered them in the industry yet. Um, so it put a really high stress level on me and coming straight out of school, I thought I was supposed to know how to do all this stuff. Um, so it caused a lot of uh, fear and panic and anxiety. And I basically sit in my office researching all day long, trying to figure out how to do my job. And it, that, that never actually led anywhere healthy. So having progressed through a couple different team environments and um, you know, seeing healthier styles of interaction between management and new hires, um, you know, fast forward five years in my career, when we're bringing on new hires and um, in, a, in a consulting environment, one of the first things I would say to them is nobody expects you to be able to do your job. I know that's kind of weird because we just interviewed you and hired you and you showed off whatever projects you've been working on, but we genuinely don't think you can do this right now. And that's fine. Like that's the expectation is day one, you don't know how to do anything. I literally have to tell you where the bathroom is on day one. That's how direct the instruction is, right? And so when I would take breaks during the day, I would walk back through the new hire section of our building and just say, hey, how's it going? And 100% of the time they'd say, great, it's awesome because I'm terrified and I don't want <laughs> you to know that I don't know what I'm doing. Um, that rest, you know, the last bit I think was internal monologue. Right. So I'd say, what are you working on? And they'd kind of, 
point at their screen and the, the task they were given and said, great, so how does that, how does that piece work? And they kind of start tracing through the logic and eventually hit that gap and say, well, I mean, this part, I really don't know. I've been trying to figure that out. And so usually it was a project that I'd worked on for a little bit. And so I'd share some of the knowledge I had gained and it would get them over, you know, over that bump. And you could see the, the visible signs of relief come off of them uh, that they were no longer stuck. But that's what I was trying to communicate is, you know, at this stage of the game, if you're stuck for more than 15 minutes, just come ask somebody because we know that you don't know what you're doing. And it's completely unfair to project an expectation that you should be running shoulder to shoulder with the rest of this team that's been here, even just for six months, you're going to be so much more experienced at what the, what the code base looks like and the customer requirements, but let alone working next to somebody who's been doing this for multiple decades. For there's, sure. just, there's such a huge gap and we don't communicate very well in school just how big the gap is between someone that's made 20 years worth of mistakes. You know, maybe you just land the hottest new technology and they don't have a lot of experience in that language, but they know 20 years worth of ways to do and break things. You know, how to, how to do it wrong, how to catch when you're wasting time, how to recognize when, you know, digging deeper in the code is not gonna give you the solution. And those are things that you just, you don't learn until you're sitting next to somebody else, not in a sterile environment where the problem has been carefully crafted. So you can't veer too far off to the left or the right, but in an environment where you're looking through a million line code base, trying to figure out, well, what five lines do I change to get this one feature added? Um, it's just a very, it's a very different environment. Well, and it's interesting because it's, it's not just the new hires, like I, I, I for sure agree with you in that setting. But what I've also seen too is when there is any kind of pressure on a team or even just not even pressure, but having an actual pulse on the emotional level of the team is something I've seen not done well among engineers. And I think it's because mm. those which is the one that's the one that um, is cares about the who's on the team and the the emotional connections. I don't think there's that high of the people that do that that are also the analytical minded. At least that's been my experience because I hone in on anybody that has that ability that can read the pulse of the team because whether it's the the new hire, whether it's the we're approaching a deadline and you can tell the stress levels of everybody that something is wrong, but they're not saying that anything is wrong or even just nobody seems to ask the team members, hey, are you happy working here? Like, are you actually on pace to you know, are you having your career uh, goals met? Are you, you know, doing the kind of work that you're enjoying? Do you see growth potential here? I've, I've had very few managers actually ask me that question, but it's the, I haven't seen a lot of people that are willing to tackle those situations and give you good, accurate information if you're not that type, because one of the hardest things I've found is kind of gauging that. And yeah, you can ask the team, hey, are you happy? But that's, <laughs> you know, they're always like, sure, we're happy. Like, um, 
And that's a really good, um, I'll, I'll add real quick, that's a really good point. And what, what stood out to me is that there is a, there's a difference in the experience of pain an S or a D is willing to experience before they instigate and activate change to get rid of that pain. S's tend to be extremely loyal and have very, very high pain thresholds under unhealthy management, whether that's in technical competence or emotional competence. They will, they will stick around through a lot that a D in the exact same environment would say, oh, heck no, we're not doing that another day. And they'd be gone the next week because change excites the D. Change is a perfectly valid tool to use to get yourself out of a situation and into a new environment. But an S tends to value stabilizing the environment. They value preserving the status quo. And so the, the resistance to change can keep an S in an environment where they really are dissatisfied, but it's not horrific. You know, it's, it's not borderline abuse. And so we're, we're going to stick it out and see, see if we can, you know, see the ship through. Um, and I think there's something to, because that gap exists, exactly what you said, if a, if a D says, hey, is everybody doing okay? They're probably gonna get a thumbs up from all of the S's, even if the environment is unhealthy enough that another D would give you a hard thumbs down in that same, same environment because they are willing to stick it out and endure a higher degree of emotional pain for the sake of not shifting the status quo. And so what you mentioned, having, having someone that is in that influencer position where they are more emotionally in tune, but are also analytical, you can get people that show C and I characteristics, although they do seem to be more rare that I've, that I've found. But I do remember I, I worked for a guy that I had tremendous respect for. He, he had a um, a company that he managed created a technology that I'm pretty sure all of us use almost every day on our phones, makes things so convenient. Um, it's absolutely awesome. I really enjoyed working with him. Uh, but we were having a conversation about exactly this, the team dynamic. And I was raising a flag because I said, this team that we're working on, um, a couple of people had quit and a couple of people had been um, hired away off, you know, a dangling carrot of a higher salary. And the team that we were left with was primarily uh, S's and uh, one or two C's. And so I was raising a concern that we were growing this unbalanced team. And his feedback was, well, I don't know if we really need a balanced team to get the objective done, uh, which is funny because that's a very D style perspective was, well, the work's getting done. so." what's this balance thing? Like if, if this composition is getting the job done, why do we need to change it? But, you know, hindsight being 2020, when we look back in retrospect, that team continued to face high levels of attrition. And the number one, as I talked to people as they were leaving uh, and myself wound up, you know, being included there, 
the number one reason was because of the imbalance on the team and the style of management that they were stuck under. You know? uh, and uh, first of all, I would agree with what Jeff just said uh, about the stick-to-itiveness or the stability of the S's are willing to accommodate a lot of stress because they want to try to stabilize not only their situation, but the team situation. Another aspect that drops into that that we didn't talk about too much, and we probably don't have a lot of time to get into it right now, but as I mentioned earlier, the first day you were on a job or the first day you're in an assignment, you probably have the highest motivation that you're ever going to have on that assignment, but you're the least skilled. Unfortunately, as skills tend to rise, the motivation tends to drop. And one of the things a manager has to be aware of is, well, what am I going to do about that motivational level? Interestingly, most team members will drop out somewhere between the coach and the collaboration phase on that sort of roadmap that we were talking about, because that's kind of where motivation hits the low point. And one of the strategies of collaboration is to bring them into the process a little bit more with their ideas as opposed to just giving them feedback. Now we're asking for their feedback on how to improve. And interestingly enough, that's also a way to increase motivation. So the thing that Jeff mentioned about an unbalanced team can create a number of different issues. He talked about the attrition level. I don't know the team and I don't know the dynamics of the team, but I would venture a guess that they were stuck somewhere between the coach and collaboration phase where their motivation tend to be at the lowest. You don't, unless you have a good alternate offer, you don't leave a team where you're highly motivated and you're highly effective. You are feeling a lot of satisfaction from your contribution to the team under those circumstances. Where you leave a team is when you're not motivated and you don't, and you're not seeing your your efforts going toward an effective end result. Well, I think I'm probably going to cut this off um, for today, but I really do appreciate both of you um, your time and um, you know if there's any particular you know interesting facets as I you know create more of these episodes that is on the same topic you know you both are are welcome you know back I really appreciated the conversation and the different insights um, that both of your perspectives brought. Absolutely, I think there's um, even just as we're talking through here, my mind was pruning branches of things I wanted to talk about because they would venture too far off topic but still felt just worth discussing and worth um, sharing some of the, uh, the intersection of experience and things that we're um, learning today and putting into practice. There's just, there's a lot just purely around how do we increase emotional intelligence to increase actual competency and effectiveness in a small team setting. Uh, but even just beyond that in technology and some of the, the other industry trends I'm seeing with uh, the, not just social media, but the way we are interacting socially, the intersection between that and game companies, hyper-casual gaming, um, our attention economy, 
there are a variety of other topics I think I'd, I'd love to dig in and share, uh, share our perspectives and hopefully, you know, bring some people some hope and some understanding in some of those questions and things that are out there looming on the horizon. Chris, I really enjoyed this opportunity. I appreciate the invitation and it was, it was really my pleasure to be part of this. I, we all work on teams and we all bring our personality to the team and we all interact with somebody else's personality on the team. And a passion of mine is to see those interactions be as effective as possible because the ultimate goal is to get a profitable interaction for everybody, not only financially, but emotionally, so that a team is a satisfying personally activity, but it's also a satisfying financial activity for the company. Usually I benefit if the company benefits. And so uh, I really appreciated the opportunity to share whatever insights I've gained over the years and thank you for the invitation.